everyone, and welcome to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is Terry Lynn Coop tonight, guest hosting for Pam Stack. And what we have tonight is we have Professor Alex Rosenberry, and we're going to be talking Rosenberg, excuse me, and we're going to be talking about his new novel, The Intrigues of Jenny Lee. Good evening, Alex. How are you? Hi, Terry. Nice to talk to you. I'm pretty good. <clears throat> Absolutely. I want to get straight into your, well, first, actually, no, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about what you teach and what you, uh, what you do. I'm a philosophy professor, um, mainly interested in the relationship between philosophy and science, uh, but it has nothing to do with the novels that I write. In the last eight or nine years, I've been writing uh, historical novels that have zero connection with my academic career. And uh, I don't think this is particularly the time to talk about the academic career. Well, where do you teach? I teach at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Famous for its basketball. Absolutely. And let's get right in. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your novel? Well, it's a historical novel. It's Mm -hmm. about a young woman, a real person, who lived uh, uh, through the 20th century, Jenny Lee, uh, was a young woman who ran for parliament at the age of 24, five years too young even to vote for herself uh, in <laughs> February of 1929, and was elected and then served for many years. Uh, in her later life, she was eventually a cabinet minister in the government of Harold Wilson. But my story is about her early years in parliament. And, of course, I've taken some significant liberties with uh, the, the intimate details of her life, um, mm-hmm. not her public life, at least not for the first four or five years, um, and tried to show what it must have been like for a young woman, uh, a serious, uh, politically ambitious young woman uh, with a significant commitment to uh, political values. She was a woman on the left of the Labour Party in uh, Parliament in the late 20s, um, what her life uh, must have been like and what the struggles were that she had to deal with in order to succeed. Um, And that's what it starts out as, but it ends up, or at any rate, it transforms itself into uh, a political thriller, and eventually by its end, because of the way the story unfolds, a murder mystery. Excellent. So make sure it's not a biography. No, there's a great biography of Jenny Lee written by Lady Patricia Hollis, a member of the British House of Lords that was published in the late 1990s and won a prize, in fact. And that book was, in some respects, the inspiration for my novel. So how would you classify your novel? What's its genre? So it starts out as historical fiction, Uh, a, a novel about a real woman and the vicissitudes of her life. And it becomes a political thriller uh, when Jenny Lee has a chance to radically shift the trajectory of British history in about 1930 during the Depression, uh, what the British call the slump. And it ends up, because of the way she intervenes with apparent success to change the course of history into a potential tragedy that requires her to act in ways that turn the book into a murder mystery thriller. Ooh. Now, what's the what's the time period? You said she was she was elected to parliament in about 1929. 
Yes, so the time period of the novel is from 1929 to 1934, um, a period during which the real Jenny Lee uh, was a member of parliament and then a participant in a number of really important uh, political events and eventually married a very famous labor politician, Anoiran Bevan, the founder uh, after World War II of the... Uh, uh, the NHS, the National Health Service of Great Britain. Um, but all through her life, she maintained an independent political uh, persona from Anoiran Bevan right through to the end of her life. Um, and even in my novel, of course, she's a completely independent person. And that's an interesting time period between the two world wars that we don't read a lot about. What led you to write about Jenny Lee? Oh, that's really interesting. You're right that we tend to, to focus on Britain in World War II, for example, or uh, uh, Europe during the, uh, the hegemony of the Third Reich. In fact, I've written two novels about those two periods. Uh, 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 and we spend less time, we know less about uh, uh, politics in Britain in the 1930s. We all know about, say, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and the Depression in the United States. But there was a depression in Britain, too, caused by the stock market crash, and it was much more severe than it was uh, uh, elsewhere, except maybe for Germany. And during this depression, um, politics um, was taken control of by uh, um, the, the forces of reaction, uh, and they destroyed the Labour Party and its own recipe for the for recovery in the face of the depression and so my novel is about how jenny tries to prevent that from happening uh, and oh. how her success in in preventing that from happening makes things even worse for britain and requires <laughs> her to take even greater action to save her country oh my goodness that sounds fascinating and you mentioned in here too that the, we see the future queen mother. Oh, yes. You see, there what other historical characters? characters? Yeah. In, in, in this book, uh, I've managed to um, uh, 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 to, to think about uh, how Jenny would inter have interacted with Lady uh, um, Elizabeth <laughs> Bowes-Lyons, the future queen mm -hmm. and queen mum. We all remember this wonderful woman who lived to the age of 102 uh, and yes. was Elizabeth, the current queen's mother. Um, well, in my novel, uh, which take place, takes place before she ascends to the, uh, the throne because her brother-in-law, uh, Edward VIII, uh, abdicates, um, before mm -hmm. this time, she, Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, uh, is uh, part of a conspiracy which ensnares Jenny to support the, um, the political intrigues of a very important member of the Labour Party, the most charismatic and attractive of the Labour politicians of the early 1930s, Oswald Mosley. Um, it's not really well known that this man, Oswald Mosley, was the most important figure in the Labour Party after um, Ramsay MacDonald, the Prime Minister, before he quit the party and became the head of the Union of British Fascists, the, uh, the, oh. the would-be Adolf Hitler of British politics in the 1930s. And in my novel, because the Labour Party doesn't lose power and Mosley becomes prime minister, 
the threat of a fascist Britain becomes a much more real possibility than it ever was in reality. In reality, Mosley tried to do in Britain what Benito Mussolini had done in Italy and Adolf Hitler in Germany, and he failed completely. But he need not have done, he might not have, uh, if history had gone a different way. And that's the historical trajectory that I try to wrestle with in the novel. So sort of a, you you take that that fork in the road and you go down and you see what might have happened otherwise into kind of an exactly, alternate history? Exactly right. It's alternate history. And uh, Oswald Mosley, if you look at a photograph of him online, for example, you'll see he was a charismatically handsome man. And Jenny Lee was a remarkably attractive and independent woman. And the chemistry between them would have had to have been great enough to ignite the details of the intrigue that I describe in the novel. Oh, I love, I love political intrigue. Uh, give just a little example without any spoilers, just a, a, a snippet of some of the political intrigue. Well, Jenny arrives in London and she's entertained by an old friend of hers, uh, a member of the, uh, the labor cabinet, um, but uh, a grandee, a rich and uh, uh, well-born uh, uh, lord. Uh, and she's invited to a dinner party. And at this dinner party, there are a number of other guests. There's uh, um, Captain Harold Macmillan and his wife. Uh, Harold Macmillan, of course, 50 years later, 40 years later, becomes prime minister. But at this time, he's estranged from his wife, who's been sleeping with one of his parliamentary colleagues for some <laughs> years and will continue to do so for the next 25 or 30 years in real history. And uh, a uh, well-known economist named John Maynard Keynes and his uh, ballerina wife, Lydia <laughs> Laprova. Uh, but of course, Keynes, we know, the reader and uh, uh, but Jenny doesn't know, is a homosexual and it's a marriage en blanc. Uh, and mm-hmm. Jenny is having dinner with uh, the Keyneses and the Macmillans and uh, Lord uh, Trevelyan and his wife when the eighth person invited to the dinner arrives and it's the member of parliament um, <laughs> and a former uh, a major in the army with a military cross uh, Sir Oswald Mosley. And in the middle of, and of course, as dinner ends, the ladies retire to the drawing room and the men remain over the uh, the port and cigars. And Jenny, of course, insists on remaining with the men because she's interested in politics. And sitting next to her at the table, she finds an uh, unexpected hand creeping up her thigh. Nobody has dinner quite like the British do. Exactly. Now, Tell me about some of the research and the background that went into this book, because obviously so much of it turns on the actual details of history. Yeah, that's interesting, because um, in my other three novels, uh, people have always suggested (laughs) that there had to have been a lot of research. And indeed, some people complain that that there's too much history. But um, uh, I, I didn't really have to do much research because... Um, I've spent my life reading about uh, this period of British history. And uh, what I and others who have some familiarity with this period know is that in 1930, when the slump came, the Labour Party, the Socialists, were running Britain. They were in command. They were 
uh, the government, the ruling party, and the king and Ramsey and and Stanley Baldwin, the head of the conservatives, decided to suborn to to uh, uh, bribe the prime minister, the Labour prime minister Ramsey Macdonald, into switching parties ditching the Labour Party, destroying its political position, and becoming the figurehead prime minister for a conservative government. Uh, it was a similar, as though someone, Herbert Hoover, might have taken uh, Franklin Roosevelt and made him the figurehead uh, president of a Republican administration in the middle of the Depression. That's what actually happened in Britain in 1931. The leader of the Labour Party betrayed his party and his government and switched sides. And that always troubled me as a, as a reader of British history. Um, so I began to think, what if it could have been stopped? Could anyone have so galvanized the Labour Party into preventing this from happening um, uh, that the great betrayal of 1931 in British politics didn't take place? And after thinking about this long enough, I realized there is a way it could have happened, but it would have required a woman with guile. And that's what my novel is about. Fascinating. So so this is like your light reading? <laughs> well, um, I hope it's like light reading for the, for the readers, for people who are interested in, in how women can take history into their hands and change things, uh, maybe for the worse, and of course, eventually as in the happy ending of my book for the better. But if someone, someone who picks up your book and reads it, they're going to get a good solid dose of the British history of the day, correct? Well, there's nothing except for the fiction of the relationship between Jenny and uh, uh, Lady Elizabeth Bowles-Lyons. And uh, uh, that's about it for... Uh, clear falsification. Um, th they won't learn anything that they, that isn't true about history up until the 27th of August, 1931, when everything changes in my book. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think that I, I didn't write this so that people would find a digestible way of learning British history. History is, you know, dead and gone. And um, for it to be relived, it has to be really entertaining. It has to be a story. It has to be a, a plot with uh, uh, a significant mystery. And that's what I've tried to write, not uh, a, a, uh, a kind of uh, easy-to-digest history. But it could definitely, again, if, some, if someone is interested in the, in the period, you're going to give them an introduction that's right. In fact, at the back of the book, there's a dramatis personae in which I explain who some people you might never have heard of are, like, for example, Winston Churchill or Lady Astor or Lloyd George, <laughs> figures from British history um, that have cameos or even more than cameos in this book. Yes, I saw you mentioned you mentioned Winston Churchill about Jenny Lee throwing uh throwing barbs and bolts of thunder at the likes of Winston Churchill. Yes, well, Churchill was the Chancellor of the Exchequer when Jenny arrived in Parliament, and he had to give the budget speech um, uh, uh, a month after her first sitting, and she made her maiden speech attacking his budget, and it was 
full of wonderful barbs and jibes uh, against him, um, ones that were remembered in real history um, mm-hmm. throughout the Labor and Conservative parties for, for many years. Perfect. And earlier you, you referenced your other novels. Why don't you just give me a quick um, tour through the other books that you've written? What, what, how many books have you written on, and novels, yeah, I, rather? How many novels? I've, I've published two more, and I've got a fourth one about to come out. The first one is The Girl from Krakow, um, mm-hmm. which was published in 2015 and sold about 400,000. It's a novel about a woman and her lover between 1935 and 1947. Her vicissitudes in Poland and in Germany, uh, surviving on false identity, she's Jewish, um, in the war, and her lover, whose uh, own path takes him from uh, Poland to France to Spain in the Civil War to Russia, back to Poland at the end of the war, um, where he's reunited with her. Um, And it is a historical novel that um, a lot of people have um, uh, uh, spent a lot of time with and enjoyed. Uh, There are about 3,500 reviews on the Amazon site. Uh, And it was followed by another book called uh, Ottoman Oxford, which is uh, um, an espionage thriller in which a... uh, 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 an American comes to England because he's blacklisted for having written mm-hmm. a book called What If the South Had Lost the Civil War? He's blacklisted in uh, the United States and goes to Oxford where he's framed for murder. And the question is who framed him, the KGB, the British Secret Service, or the FBI? And his his uh, lover and his solicitor, a young woman, both have to try to figure out who did this in order to free him uh, at the risk of their mm-hmm. own life. And the that one fourth one that's coming out next year is a sequel to The Girl from Krakow. And I'm hoping Ooh. that all the 400,000 people who read and enjoyed <laughs> that novel will enjoy uh, a sequel that takes my her- the heroine of that book, uh, Rita Feuerstahl is her name, from mm-hmm. uh, 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 Europe in the ruins of the post-war uh, reconstruction right through the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in Manhattan in New York. Um, and uh, 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 shows how she struggles to survive carrying a secret, which was the secret that enabled her to survive the war, but now threatens her life uh, after the war has ended. And it's a secret about the the German um, uh, uh, coding machines, the Enigma machines yes. that uh, produced the ultra- uh, secrets that the Allies decoded and never told anyone that they decoded until 30 years after the war. So this book begins with the mystery of why did the Allies, the British and the Americans, keep it a secret for 30 years after World War II that they had decoded the German Enigma Code when they didn't keep atom, atoms or rockets or radar or any of the other great secrets of the war um, to themselves. So that's what that novel is about. That sounds fascinating, and that's a period of history that I'm very fascinated with. When do you think that one, when is your estimated release date for that? Oh, it'll be out in the winter. Next okay. Winter. Yeah, it's, very, it's in very production good. now. Yeah. Very good. And now, again, as a as a professor, you've obviously done a lot of academic publishing. What made you decide you wanted to write novels? 
That's very interesting. I wrote a really outrageous book about 10 years ago called The Atheist Guide to Reality. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this book, I argued that most of the enduring questions of philosophy can be answered by science, and the answers aren't very palatable. Um, uh, And I had another thesis in that book. It was a thesis, it was a claim about the nature of narrative uh, explanations and and how much knowledge or how little knowledge they provide us. And nobody even understood that uh, claim. I mean, nobody agreed with the first claim, but nobody even understood the second claim. And I realized the only way I was going to help people understand what I had in mind was by writing a narrative, by writing mm-hmm. a narrative, attacking narratives. And so I wrote this novel, um, and the novel shows what's the matter with narratives in the head, in the mind of my heroine, Rita, Okay, And my agent mm-hmm. and my editor, they really liked the novel, but they hated the philosophy. And so they took all the <laughs> philosophy out, and they left just the story. And they were obviously very wise to do so, because with if I had left or they had allowed the philosophy to remain in the book, nobody would have read it. And instead, it was a page-turner. Um, and it taught me a lot about writing and mm-hmm. the enjoyment and the different kind of demands that writing fiction places on you compared to writing academic philosophy just made me want to do more of this. And as you pointed out, Terry, at the beginning, um, I'm a reader of history, and uh, all these novels of mine haven't taken a lot of research because I just internalize so much. And sitting in front of my computer and externalizing all these vignettes and stories and narratives of history and twisting them together into a a thread that actually makes sense. It's it's like taking real dots in history and connecting them in ways that make sense. Um, That is the challenge to me in writing historical fiction. And and that's what I've been sort of doing along with my philosophy for the last 10 years. Okay. Well, we're, we're, Approaching the end here, but I just wanted to ask you, I was kind of interested in another one of your publications of, and I'll ask you the question of why are we addicted to stories? Ah, so um, having written these three novels, uh, I, I got back to the, 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 the thesis, the claim of my previous book that I mentioned uh, about narratives, and I began to think, uh, we're suckers for narratives. We love stories. Why is it that yeah. we love stories? Why is it that we can't get them out of our heads? Why is it that the only way we can really remember things is by uh, stringing them together into stories with plots and uh, heroes and villains and motives? Uh, and uh, uh, I began to think about the evolutionary psychology, the neuroscience and the psychopathology of our addiction to stories. Uh, And um, I finally figured it out. And having figured it out, I wrote this book called How History Gets Things Wrong, The Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. And it's a book about uh, about autism, about evolutionary uh, game theory, about uh, the theory of mind, as a module in our brains and how that drives our fascination with and our uh, demand uh, for stories instead of science as a way of packaging 
and understanding and remembering knowledge. So that's okay. what that's about. And it's it's as much a, a reflection of a, the fruit of my uh, thinking uh, about these subjects as the three novels, the four novels that I've written are. I well, love the novels, because... and I think they're great entertainment, right? I just don't think they're knowledge. I um, oh, well, I teach high school, and this last semester in English, we're teaching, you know, rhetorical devices and how using certain language structures can take that if you just give somebody a list of facts, they're not going to listen to you. But if you can tie it together with metaphors and parallel construction and different kinds of syllogisms, then you can make it into something that people are still talking about 100 years later. Yeah, right. Like those kids um, who uh, memorize pi to 100 decimal places, how do they do it? Well, they do it by connecting each of the digits in the expansion of pi into a story or a room mm-hmm. of a house or some kind of a mnemonic device, a device that trades on our uh, addiction to stories, on our love of narrative and on our ability to carry narratives around when we can't carry around the laws of nature or mathematical models or tables of data uh, or complex theories in physics. And we like we like rhythm. Yes, exactly. our ear, our ear, our ears like rhythm. Right. So that's so, another thing that's so important in writing my novels. Uh, I find I have to read them to myself aloud, over yes. and over, because I know at any given sentence, if a reader loses the thread or loses interest, I've lost the reader, and I can't afford to do that. Uh, um, and. Uh, 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 and get them to the end of my story. Well, to to finish it up here, do you have a website for about your books? Yeah. And it, uh, okay, and what's the what's your website? Well, my website is uh, www.alexrose46.com, and okay. it's a website that that I've developed myself. So it's not beautiful, but uh, it it works, and you can get any of my books, any of my my novels, or my trade nonfiction books. On that website, you can also see about a dozen of my articles in the New York Times over the last 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you're really motivated to, to, to dig in and find my academic books, you can actually work from that website into my Duke University website and see them, too. And then for your novels, your, your typical places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, yep. yeah, bookstores, etc. There's a link to Amazon on for all three of them, but I just assume you go to your bookstore and buy them and browse the bookstore and go home with a bunch of other good books. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the best way. That is the best way to do it. Well, Professor, it has been fascinating to talk to you about your new book. And so Jenny Lee, the, the intrigues of Jenny Lee is available, correct? Yes, it's available. It has been for a while. And okay. um, there's nothing nicer than talking about your, yourself and your own books. So thank you, oh, no. uh, Terry, for uh, lobbing the questions at me. Uh, I almost mistook you for Terry Gross. <laughs> well, and we will, we will want to see you back here, or hear you back here, rather, when the new book comes out. Do you have a title for it yet? Uh, yes, In the Shadows of Enigma. 
sounds fantastic. Again, that is a that is a historical period that I am completely fascinated with. So I look forward to talking to you again, and you have a nice evening. And thanks for dropping by the network. No, entirely my pleasure, Terry. Thanks again. Bye bye. Bye bye. And thank you, everyone, for uh, for tuning in tonight. Authors on the Air Network is copyrighted by the Authors on the Network Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And we will be talking to you soon. Take care, everyone. Good night. Mm-hmm.